So this morning I'm um, prepared to talk to you about unity and consecrated relationships and what God says about how we're to deal with one another even when we disagree. And I just leaned over to Pastor Gina and I said, this feels really disconnected to talk about that (laughs) from where we were. And yet our God has a plan. And um, she reminded me that we can't have what we just had if there's not unity. That we don't get to bear one another's burdens and celebrate one another's joy together if we aren't one. Um, And so I'm trusting that the Lord knew what he was doing (laughs) when he put this all together. And let's... Let's dig in. So we are still in 1 Corinthians. We're talking about consecration, being set apart to be this beautiful body of Christ that represents him and his kingdom to the world. Last week, Pastor Gina preached to us about being consecrated to live a holy life. You remember that pet peeve she shared about muddy boots coming in and making your clean floor all dirty and how important it is that the church does the work of keeping the floor clean. As a body, we agreed to submit to our leaders and our office bearers together, even and especially when they come with correction, for the sake of keeping our body holy and set apart. Now, as we've been walking through this series, there's been this overarching theme that you may have picked up on many of the sermons. So let me put this really clearly for us. Paul is saying in all of these things that if we fail to submit ourselves to be consecrated to the Lord and to his ways, it bears bad fruit for us, for one another, and for the kingdom. But when we do consecrate ourselves to God and his ways, it bears good fruit for us, for one another, and for the kingdom of God. And so we're going to continue with this pattern this morning. We're reading together from 1 Corinthians 6. 1 to 11, if you've got your Bibles with you. 1 Corinthians 6. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead... You yourselves cheat, and you do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and to your sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, 
nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. And I want to start not with a pet peeve, but with a confession. So it was maybe like five or six years ago, and we were in the midst of what would be called like a global refugee crisis. I don't remember the exact context, but there had been conflict in the Middle East, and because of it, there were refugees coming into Europe and Canada and trying to get into the U.S., And I had just recently returned from living in the Middle East. Some of you, I think most of you know I lived in the Middle East. Um, And within the U.S. in particular, there had emerged a movement to not allow refugees into our country. And the argument that was given was that because of a threat of Islamic terrorism, we couldn't allow Arab refugees into the States. I remember scrolling through Facebook one day and a relative of mine had posted an article on the situation. And she posted it with a caption about, like, protecting our children or something, and and I clicked it, and I probably shouldn't have. (laughs) Have you ever done this? Okay. So regardless of our opinions on immigration in this particular context and situation, this article just absolutely broke my heart. It made, like, mass assumptions and statements that just, oh, it just made my heart bleed. Like, I love these people. I know so many of these people. The situation just broke my heart. My blood started to boil, and I really just should have X'd out and like kept scrolling. But I didn't. I immediately angry typed. Has anyone ever angry typed? A response that basically shamed my relative for posting this article. She was a Christian. How could somebody who follows Jesus be so cold? To people in need. You know, I got out my Bible and I started Googling and I got scripture to back my argument. By the time I smashed that enter key, I was feeling pretty high and mighty about myself and my arguments. Have you done this? Anybody? I'm feeling vulnerable here. Okay. Any keyboard warriors out there with me? Anyway, what followed was not good. It wasn't good. I'd done some serious damage to the relationship that I had with this relative and with other relatives that jumped in on the conversation. Both Christians and non-Christians had found their way to our posts and things had gotten heated. Even if some of my perspectives or thoughts had been correct, the way that I had publicly accused and shamed my relative had not been helpful or fruitful. And since then, there has been some reconciliation work and some apologies and some forgiveness, but I still feel bad about it when I think about it. Nobody won that day. Right? Like, nobody won the battle. We didn't get anywhere. No one was helped. And in retrospect, as I think about it, if a non-Christian, and non-Christians did read this, why would they want anything to do with Jesus or Christians? Because both of us were claiming to represent Christ in our opinions and the way that we presented them were just not Jesus at all. Our public conflict hadn't proved any great point. No one was the winner that day. And in fact, together, 
all of us had done a great disservice to the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he offered to that situation. This is exactly the problem that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 6. Now remember that Paul is writing this letter to a church in Corinth, and he's addressing a multitude of problems. The city of Corinth was a city full of rich and intellectual people of various worldviews. And probably remember that it was famous both for drunken debauchery and also for intellectual thinking. Not unlike our current American context, Corinthians prided themselves on their wisdom. They chose to do what they thought was right. They chose their own worldview. They puffed themselves up with their intellectual pride. And unfortunately, these attitudes had made its way into, its, into the church. Now, another integral part of Corinthian culture that had made its way into the church specifically was that of public lawsuits. So you think this is ancient Corinth. They don't have TVs. They don't have Netflix. They don't have devices. But they like entertainment because they're humans, yes? And they had their own forms of entertainment, And they had this thing called the Bema. Can you say Bema? Bema. Bema. So it literally means like a raised platform. But if you would go to the marketplace in Corinth, in the middle of the marketplace, there would be this raised stage thing. And on the stage would sit a magistrate, a Greek magistrate. And if Pastor Dave and I were suing each other over property, we could just walk ourselves down to the Bema and do court TV in public in front of everybody and have this magistrate rule on our court cases. So you can imagine all these people come and they sit down like it's Judge Judy, right? And they're watching court take place on the public forum. And you know what's crazy? The Christians are showing up at the Bema. When two Christians had a petty disagreement amongst themselves, just like their Greek neighbors, they'd walk to the market, stand before that Greek judge, and publicly make claims against each other. I'm guessing we've all seen court in some capacity, even if it's just on TV. And court is rarely a pretty thing, is it? We know that in order for a person to win a lawsuit, they've got to make the other person look guilty. If you're taking someone to court, you're pretty confident that you're right, and you no longer have much care for the other person's perspective. People will say anything to win a court case. They'll publicly shame someone. They'll bring in witnesses to affirm their perspectives in ways that are dishonoring to whoever they're coming against. There's just so much wrong here. It's no wonder that Paul is just completely outraged with the church. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare? Do you dare to take it before an ungodly judge rather than the Lord and his people? What are you doing? Paul is saying that you take your disputes before a judge who does not even know the one who judges the world. How dare you bring your disputes before the ungodly instead of God? Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you or I say this to your shame. The way that you're behaving is shameful to yourself. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge your dispute, but instead a brother takes a brother to court? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you're completely defeated already. 
Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? But instead, you cheat and you do wrong and you do it to each other. Why are we giving one another reasons to go to court to begin with, brothers and sisters? Stop doing wrong, Paul says. Stop cheating one another. And stop bringing it to someone who has no wisdom to give you. Do you not know that you were made to judge the world? One day you'll judge even angels. You bear the authority of God. So why are you putting your arguments in the hands of this fallen world? It's better that you just take a hit. It's better that you just allow yourselves to be cheated than to compromise the witness of the gospel in front of the whole public forum. As I was thinking about this sermon and praying about it, I had talk radio on in the car on the way home. I don't usually listen to talk radio, so I don't really know how this happened, (laughs) but it did. And someone called in on a show, and I don't even know what show it was, but this is what happened. A Christian woman had called in to these two radio talk show hosts with a question, and she said, My church is flying a gay pride flag over the building. But our building has been declared a historical site. You all know how a city can declare a building a historical site. So the question is, is it legal for my church to fly a flag over a historical site like this? I was kind of confused by this question. The radio hosts go on to share their perspectives, and one specifically talked about how given that historically no church denomination has ever endorsed what the flag stands for, and that historical sort of zoning over that building means that it has to preserve the historical integrity of that building, that they are no longer maintaining a spirit of historical ideology for the building. So if the building is declared historical, it has to maintain that integrity, and the flag compromises that integrity. So legally, you might have something to say. Does this make sense? It's confusing. I'm sorry. So as the host went back and forth with the caller, I just found myself wondering how a non-Christian would receive all this. Now, I don't know all the backstory or the details, and so I want to be very careful. I don't know this woman. I don't know her perspective. We are not passing judgment on her. But here we have a woman who's part of a church clearly upset about this flag, and I'm with her on that. But rather than go directly to the pastor or church leadership, we're asking a public radio station host if there is a legal way to get her way in church. Now, the impression I got of this church was not good, right? Like, we've got some disunity. I've got all kinds of questions Is this how we handle disagreements? Is this how we decide upon the truth that we ask the world for its wisdom and the courts for it? This isn't exactly a church family that I'd want to join, right? Now, you and I may not be calling public radio shows, and I'm really hopeful that we're not going to court with one another, right? Okay. (laughs) Good. But in the ways that we treat one another, in the ways that we talk about one another to our family members or our friends, 
and the ways that we debate each other, even other believers that we don't know, on comment sections or public platforms, and the ways that we refer to other Christians who vote differently from us or who view COVID differently from us, and the ways we talk about church leaders and the decisions that churches make, whether they're ours or someone else's that we're observing. The world is watching, and they're listening. What kind of impression of the church as a whole, of our church, and of our Christian brothers and sisters are we making? Just as Paul was telling the Corinthians, when we're divided, when we're willing to speak poorly of one another, when we're willing to publicly shame other believers, and when we have more faith in secular and legal authority than the authority of God and his word, then we've lost it. We lost our witness. The whole message of the gospel is compromised. Church, we're a family. family have you ever heard that situation where like someone else can't make fun of my sibling but I can like we shouldn't make fun of our sibling it shouldn't be okay for any of us right we're family and we're a family with a good father which we've heard tremendous testimony of this morning our God is faithful and you know when our God is faithful he's faithful in our disagreements He's faithful when the truth isn't clear. He's faithful when we're offended. He's faithful when we're afraid. When we disagree, we can take it before our Heavenly Father. We can ask Him about those disagreements and where they come from. We can ask what He has to say about them. And we've got church leadership to help us ask those questions and work through it. As a caveat here, I want to say, and Paul is not saying that we as Christians should never utilize the legal system. Okay, There are very clear moments where we need to utilize the legal system. I'm thinking about like um, sex scandals in churches. Like This is not an excuse to just shove sin under the rug and say we're going to deal with it in-house. We're talking about you and I disagree about politics. You and I disagree about how we handled this event. We're talking about smaller disputes, non-criminal disputes. Fights over money, non-biblical opinions, estates, wills, personal property, these things. But what it boils down to is that if we are truly united in Christ, if we are committed to the unity that God calls us to, if we truly desire God's wisdom and his righteousness over our own wisdom and our own opinions, then we get to do what we did this morning. We get to share life with one another and all of its triumphs and all of its joys and all of its sorrows too. This is the grace that Paul points to for the Corinthian church. Do you not know, says Paul, that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that you will judge angels how much more the things of this life? Now, this might sound strange that we as believers will judge the world and even angels. Stay with me here. And Paul's referring to here 
are both the gifts and equipping that is given to us by the Holy Spirit, which we talked about this morning, gifts being poured out, and also the authority and role bestowed upon us by Jesus. This morning there were gifts poured out of prophecy and hope for Kevin and Jackie, and in authority we got to declare God's goodness. Right? We get to do those things. Later on in this letter and elsewhere in other letters, Paul describes those gifts that he gives. He pours out wisdom, discernment of spirits, words of knowledge, prophecy. The list goes on and on. We'll talk about these things later in the book. But if we're disagreeing, don't we want the wisdom of God? Don't we want the discernment of God, the ways of God? Later on in Ephesians 5, Paul says that by that wisdom that God gives, we can walk as children of the light and we can discern what is pleasing to our God. In Romans, Paul tells us that by the renewing of our minds, we can test and discern what is the will of God and what is pleasing to him. God gives us his wisdom. He also gives us his authority. You probably remember that Jesus himself said that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And then he gives his authority to his disciples, saying that they had the power to do what he had done and that they would do even more. In Ephesians 2, we read that we are seated with Jesus in heavenly places. We get to rule and reign with our king. So by his spirit, we can discern what is not of God and what is of God, and we have the power to respond to it. This is not the greatest gift in conflict, friends. Like, come on, we're given everything that we need. And as we continue to submit ourselves to what God says, to his wisdom, to his words, we can model peace and grace and unity like what we saw this morning that is absolutely beyond what we can ever imagine in this world. Friends, when we get upset or offended, when we are certain that we've been wronged, and we want to call our other friends to talk about how right we are and how wrong someone else is, let's take it to the Lord. We can ask him for his wisdom. Is, is he offended by the things that we're offended by? Or is the enemy stirring up our own fears, desires, our past wounds, or our entitlements to stir up that disunity? And in those moments when we truly have been wronged, and there does need to be repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation, let's be willing to remember the grace that we've been given. This is why Paul reminds the Corinthians of their own sins. We're all fallen. So let's be willing to be wronged for the sake of unity. It's what God, if that's what God is calling for. And if we do need to have a conversation, let's go directly to one another with humility. Humility that's willing to hear well and apologize. Humility that's willing to forgive and press into restoration. And in those moments where we're stuck, have you ever just been stuck? Like, I'm so irritated, I don't know what to do with it. Let's be in the word. There's truth there and there's wisdom there. And let's pray for one another until we share God's heart for whoever or whatever we're upset about. Let's bring our misunderstandings and our hurts and our disagreements not to the world. Don't Google it. Don't ask a friend who doesn't know Jesus. Bring it to the Lord. Let's submit to the wisdom and the judgment of our God because, as another pastor once says, there is not a single problem on this earth for which our God does not already have a solution. 
We read in our Advent reading for this morning that God sent Jesus into the world. He poured out his Holy Spirit and he announced the good news that sinners who repent and believe in Jesus live anew as members of the family of God. The first fruits of a new creation. New creation. As we are a family, we represent the kingdom of God. We also heard that God continues to hold this world with fierce love. And this, I believe, is our invitation from God this morning. Let's love each other fiercely. Because as we do, we will live anew as members of the family of God, a literal representation of the new creation, the kingdom of God crashing into this world of darkness with light. Amen? Okay. Let's pray. God, I'm I'm amazed at the way that you go before. So often the work of a sermon is to give hope for what you can do. And God, you just gave us a picture of what unity in your body looks like. What walking together as family looks like. God, we give you thanks for that. Lord, we ask that you would continue to bind us together as one. Would you show us how to share in one another's burdens, to celebrate one another's joy, to walk with one another in honor. Lord, we thank you for your fierce love for us. Lord, we pray that each one of us would feel that fierce love and that we could give that love back. As we talked about earlier, you give the care that you've received. God, help us to receive your fierce love and to pour it out on one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, as we um, prepare to receive communion, why don't we stand if we're able? We've all been sitting for a while. Let's just stand. We just were called and encouraged by the Lord through Pastor Jalisa to love each other fiercely. And that is a re-echoing of these words that the Lord Jesus spoke on the night that he laid down his life. And so let me read to you what Jesus says. These are among his last words. He's praying and he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. 
to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Jesus' prayer is that we would experience the same degree, the same kind of oneness together that he and the Father and the Spirit experience. And if we're honest, we might say, but you're all perfect. Don't you know the kind of people that you're asking me to love? And he would say to us, I do. And I'm not asking you to love them out of your own love. I'm asking you to share in my love. And the the only way that you can love them is through the cross. And so he doesn't ask us to do what he hasn't already done. He speaks these words asking us that we be brought into unity and he steps right out of those words and he steps into suffering and torture and rejection and accusation and death and life so that we can step into the same things. And so the Lord He doesn't call us to a hard work that we can't do in our own. He calls us to die to our own strength and to receive His. Okay? And so, as we come, as Pastor Jalisa was finishing her message this morning, I felt like the Lord was bubbling an invitation. I wasn't here last week, but He gave a, a charge, an invitation through Pastor Gina, and I felt like He was bubbling a similar one in me this morning, and it was this. Um, I'll connect it just a moment. I was at uh, Stephanie McLean and Mark Goodwin's wedding a couple of weeks back, and they had something in their vows that was most beautiful. They said to each other, "I va- some form of this, I don't know the exact words, I vow to you that I will never take any, uh, any grievance I have with you outside of our marriage. And they each said it to each other. I will never take a grievance I have with you outside this marriage. Because we have the wisdom and the power and the strength of the Lord that you preached about to be able to handle and deal with it together. And I feel like the Lord's saying right now to us, will you vow afresh I will never take any grievance that I have with any one of you outside of dealing with with it the way the Lord calls me to, which is I take it to you. And if we can't resolve it, we ask for help from the leaders of the church. This is Matthew 18. We bring them in and we settle it together. But let's let's just say together to the Lord, we're going to be a witness to the world of the unity that Jesus brings, the love that he brings, 
because we're going to handle conflict. We're going to keep having conflict. We have conflict. We're not scared of conflict. We're going to witness to Jesus. We're going to be one in him by handling it the way he calls us to. And and so I don't I don't know what that needs to look like for you to right now to just say I'll do that because you're already all standing up. But maybe we all just put a hand up, maybe we I don't know what the sign is, but I want to call for something. I don't have a sign coming to my mind. But let's just say this is a not my will but your will be done. Lord, when I have conflict, Lord, when I struggle, Lord, when I hurt, when somebody hurts me, Lord, when that family member, Lord, when this coworker, Lord, I want to witness to you. I'm going to work for unity in your body by drawing on the power of the cross, by drawing on the compassion you have for me, and going to handle conflict out of that compassion and that love, I'm going directly to a person. I will never bring my grievance. I won't slander. I won't bring it to somebody else inappropriately. I will honor. I will honor every person that you bring me into relationship with. Every conflict I have, I'll honor. Jesus, you see our hands. You see our hearts. And Lord, We just uh, acknowledge afresh that this commitment we make before you this morning is not one we can keep in our own strength. And so now we ask you, empower us by your Holy Spirit. Remind us every time we're tempted. Remind us when we're hurt. Remind us when we're difficult. Remind us of the joy we have in looking at the cross, drawing on our, our own forgiveness and reconciliation, extending it and honoring you and other people. We're calling on you, Holy Spirit, to bring it to our remembrance and strengthen us for obedience. And now, Lord, we ask that you who gave your own body for us, you who who took bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body given for you. And you took wine, you took the cup and you said, this cup, is a new covenant in my blood given for the forgiveness of sins. We're asking, Lord, that you would meet us in this bread, this juice, this wine, as we come to receive or it's given out, that you would strengthen each of our hearts afresh in the gospel, in the grace we've received. You'd fill us with the joy of complete cleansing and forgiveness And you'd fill us, Lord, to be ambassadors to each and every person, no matter how hard or how difficult, of the grace that's in you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We pray this in your precious name, Lord. Amen.